Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast, where we cover the news of the community and learn from each other. My name is Mark Erickson. I'm Cade Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel. Let's jump into the news. First up in a sequence of GitHub-related items, GitHub Code Search-based navigation now works with Elixir. So this was announced by one of the members of GitHub's team on Twitter, and this is GitHub's first community-maintained code navigation engine, and they were acknowledging the contributions from the Elixir side for making this happen. So what this is, is if you're browsing around in your repository on GitHub, you may start to notice that certain functions or modules are highlightable as you hover over them, and you can click them and see a declaration or references. And you can click references and scroll through that and and jump around and it'll navigate you to those different parts of the application in GitHub. And so this was just a more recent thing to see. Normally, I don't browse the code that way. So I would not have noticed this if attention hadn't been drawn to it. But really helpful tool, especially when you're doing like PR reviews. The way it's implemented is using the tree sitter query language. And it's using Elixir's tree sitter implementation that's maintained by the Elixir team. And that's providing a large chunk of the work. But there's still some back-end implementation work on the GitHub side that was required to make this happen. Jose Valim added a little bit of nuance to this, saying, I believe Elixir is the 10th language to do this. And thanks to Jonathan Klasko and Mike Davis, and to the super helpful code navigation team at GitHub. So if you have code that's currently hosted on GitHub, you should go check this out. Just see how this works and play with it. Very cool. I was browsing around in some PR code yesterday and I was like, what the heck is this thing? Every time I hover over a function name, what is this? Why is it doing this? And now I know. In other GitHub related news, they've also added an item on their public roadmap titled Advisory Database Elixir Mix Support. So it looks like they are adding support to the advisory database to describe vulnerabilities within mixed packages. So This will enable Elixir package maintainers to alert users about vulnerabilities in packages. We were kind of talking about this before we started recording, and it looks similar to the Dependabot thing, but maybe different, because you might have noticed that Dependabot has done this for a little while, and we'll leave a link to the Dependabot GitHub repo. Inside, there's there's a security tab in every repo where you can go see security issues. And I think for Elixir projects, you've never been able to see anything related to security advisories there. So I think this will probably be separate. Not sure, though. We'll have to kind of see what comes from this. Lastly, about GitHub, they published an article on their README project that features uh, Elixir and LiveView. It's just a really good read. So I'm not going to repeat the whole article here, but here's the title of it. Move over JavaScript. Backend languages are coming to the front end highlighting a new crop of server-side tools that makes it possible to build web UIs without JavaScript. So if you're a listener of our podcast, this won't be news to you, right? But GitHub and the README project has a, a large audience you know, that probably doesn't know about Elixir and LiveView. So I'm just really happy to see that they wrote an article about these frameworks that we know about already, LiveView, for example. But they also highlight Stimulus Reflex or Reflex, whatever, at, at Rails, on the uh, Ruby side and the live wire project over there in PHP world, there's other frameworks too that are trying to accomplish similar effects. Now we know that LiveView is somewhat unique in, 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 in its approach, but it's still good to see this new way of tackling web UIs and server applications. Great article, give it a read. Let us know what you think of it. With that sequence of news items about GitHub, I think the thing that just struck me the most is just how much attention Elixir seems to be getting from GitHub which I think is really cool. That's exciting. Just that they're seeing a lot of value in either adding support from within to make it so that Elixir projects are better supported on their platform or even just talking about it publicly. So very cool. And next up, there is a new Erlang-focused podcast called Hello Erlang. It is just getting started and they are seeking to specifically talk about Erlang as a language and as the community. Check them out. All right, last up about libraries. There was a, a slew of updates published for some Dashbit libraries and some other libraries. There's new versions of Makeup and Flow and Nimble Parsec and Plug. They were all released. 
I skimmed through them and it looks like fairly minor updates, but could be important to you. The one that stands out to me is, is makeup. Makeup is uh, a generic syntax highlighter uh, suitable for use in code hosting, forums, wikis, other applications that need to prettify source code. If I remember correctly, I think XDoc uses makeup. So it's being used in places you probably didn't even realize. So good to see that get updated. I think the, the reason why it got, that, got updated was to use a newer version of Nimble Parsec, which was also updated. Anyway, give those libraries a check and see if it can benefit from those little bug fixes. And that's it for the news. Coming up next, the drama in Elixir boils over. Yes, we have a code formatter. I don't like the decision it just made. No, this is better. No, I prefer these. Come on. We already did that, you know, it's not going to work with this. If all we have is opinions, I prefer mine. Fly.io supports this podcast by providing editing services. Beyond being great for supporting us, they are a great place to host your next Elixir app. Check them out at fly.io. Today, we're being joined by our special guest, Jose Valim. Welcome back, Jose. Hey, glad to be back. Well, this is part two of our five-part series where we're visiting with you about the development of Elixir. And it's been one episode a month, and we're planning on continuing that out until we hit the 10-year anniversary of Elixir, the, the version of Elixir that we know and love from, as you described in our first episode, counting from the moment of first public availability and release. Part one, if you haven't heard that yet, it's episode 82. I have a link to that in the show notes. So in part one, we covered the Elixir releases of 1.1, 1.2, and 1.3, kind of going through the change log and touching on some of those big changes and headline features. And what I thought was really valuable, and I'd heard this echoed in the community, is that people were learning new things. They were saying, wow, I didn't know about that. And it's really cool to hear how these things came about and kind of get the backstory. So I'm really looking forward to continuing with that. Jose, which version did you want to pick up with today? So we are continuing, so we're going to jump into 1.4. 1.4, awesome. So looking at the changelog, I see there's like two big features, right? There's like task.asyncstream and registry. So I remember registry when I was, I was super excited for that to come out. Talk us through this. What was behind these? When Elixir 1.0 was released a couple months before we had the first Elixir call. And one of the things, it's kind of funny because we are talking about, we're having those discussions recently in the Elixir forum a month ago. But one of the things that I talked about in my presentation, one of the things that we were exploring were modifications to comprehension. So this was like 2014, okay? We wanted to have like stream four. So it's like comprehension, but it returns a lazy comprehension that is going to emit the events lazily. And we're also talking about maybe a sync for or parallel for. I don't remember exactly which word I was using there, but the idea would be a comprehension that processes the elements concurrently or in parallel. If you go back to my talks at the time, 2015, 2016, we were trying to find a general abstraction, in particular to power the parallel for or the async for. So back, I would talk about things like gen router. I wanted to find a way to exchange data, large amount of data between processes in a way that was efficient. And then we explored many designs, you know, a lot of discussing things, doing like proof of concepts and not being happy with what we wanted. And eventually we landed on the project that a lot of people use today for exactly those needs of data processing, which is GenStage. So if we use Broadway, for example, Broadway is powered by GenStage. So we spend a lot of time exploring those things. And when we launched GenStage, we launched another project with GenStage, which was built on top of GenStage, which was called Flow, which was for building these pipelines. Like imagine you can use a num, but instead of it running like sequentially, it would run like concurrently. The hello road of this kind of problems 
is counting words in a text. That's usually how the the Hello World works. And the reason for this is because it shows many of the problems you have to solve when you're talking about large amount of data and process it co- concurrently. So imagine like, you know, we want to get a book, for example, and count the words in a book. So you have one step, which is like when you get the paragraphs or maybe the pages, and then you're going to split that into words. Maybe you want to normalize the words. So for example, if, if something is in the plural form, you want to have it in the singular form. There's a lot of work that you can do there. And this work, it's like each thing that is processing those pages, this is what we call embarrassing parallel because they can all do this processing without communicating with other entities. It can scale infinitely, basically. You know, as long as you have cores, you can throw more cores at it. It's not going to be a problem. So that's like the embarrassing parallel part of the problem. And then the next step after you, you, you split the words that you have to start counting them, right? And the thing is, so you could say, well, if I have a process that like splits the word, I could have that process start counting. But the issue is, is that if you have all those processes counting the words, at the end, there is something that needs to group and sum all of the counts. Like, hey, page one had car three times, page five had car two times, page three had zero times. You need to have something that is going to put everything together. And this thing is going to be extremely slow. It's basically going to kill everything. It's not going to work. So you need like to find a mechanism, like you need to partition, you need to route the things. And that's what Flows allows you to do. It allows you to say, hey, I want to partition all this processing. So I'm going to give a very bad example of partitioning. Don't do this. But you can say, hey, all the words starting with A go to this process. All these words starting with B go to this process. But you can partition. And then the way you do is that you have each process, the process they are responsible for certain words. And then when you get the result at the end, you don't need to merge things because everything's like unique. You've, you've partitioned the processing. So this is where we were at the time, just a little bit before this release. We have like solved those problems that we were, we were trying to solve for a while. And then we had GenStage and we had Flow. And then we're thinking, well, should those things be part of Elixir? That was one of the big questions we had at the time. Today, we have a, a very clear guideline of how we add things to Elixir. But that time, it was still new, right? We, we had just launched 1.0, I mean, two years. So we were still like developing those things, developing this intuition. So we were thinking, well, should we add gen stage and flow to Elixir? And then we realized that, well, there is no benefit adding it to the language, really, because I can use it as a package. And it makes no difference if I'm using it directly from Elixir or from a package. It's the same. We decided to not add those things to the language. But at the same time, this embarrassing parallel thing where, you know, hey, I just want to execute a bunch of things that start a bunch of processes, or in Elixir, we say we start a bunch of tasks, right? I don't want to start many of them. Maybe I want to bound, like, if I'm going to talk with an external service, if I start 100 connections, they may not be happy. So I want to say, hey, start 20 connections to that external service. So maybe I want to, to do a bound for some, uh, bound the amount of processes, amount of concurrency. But if it's embarrassing parallel, that's very common. And it made sense to implement kind of a subset of flow. It's, it's really implemented differently than flow. But one way to think about it is like it's a subset of flow into the language. And that's how a task async stream came to be. So what is task async stream? So if you have like a, a collection, Imagine you have a collection of URLs, for example, and you want to start processing those URLs at the same time. You can do that with async stream, and async stream is going to give you a bunch of options to control that what is like the upper bound of concurrency, how you want to handle errors. That's all part of the task async stream. So we added to the language. I mean, we started using it a lot, right? So like Xdoc uses it to generate like your documentation pages in parallel, and I think. It's a very easy way of doing very simple concurrent processing of stuff. So I want to like revisit this term you, you said a couple of times, embarrassingly parallel. And you know, I want to define that a, l- a little bit. That word embarrassingly in this context means it is really good for parallel. Obviously good, maybe <laughs> obvious is what, what should be embarrassing about it, right? That it's so obviously fit for parallelism. And in this case, async you know, tasks for Elixir that it should be the, the, the choice here, you know? <laughs> and I'm curious, so like we talked a lot about task async stream and we'll, we'll talk about registry here soon too, but 
is interesting to hear, you know, like that gen stage and flow, you know, you had that thought process to like, uh, should this go into Elixir proper, you know, be merged into core? And the decision was no. But being so, I don't know, Elixir and distributed and parallel processing, you know, it's so good at it and almost like, I don't want to say equal, but like when, when people are starting to think about like the problems they need to solve, Elixir is the first thing that comes to my mind and, and Erlang to solve parallel processing or distributed processing of things. And so it sounds strange to me that tools like GenStage and even Flow, which are tools around solving those issues, you know, higher level tools maybe than what's already in core, would be, nah, nah, these are good for, you know, libraries, not not for core. But you did bring it back a piece, which was that task async, which is really cool. Yeah, one of the discussions I remember having at the time as well was like, because a standard library in Elixir is not that big, right? It's a, it's, it's a small standard library. I think if we added it to Elixir, I think that would also be this kind of like pressure between quotes. It's, it's a pressure, but not pressure that people need to know about it or they need to talk about it or books they need to teach about it which I don't think it's a requirement. I don't think you need to know about gens, you know, if you want to do nerves or if you want to do Phoenix, I don't think you need to know about gen stage. So that was also like, even though it's like part of the platform, when you put all the pieces together, it felt like it's good, it's great, the platform is excellent. I'm really happy of the abstraction, how it solves the problem, but I'm not really comfortable in pushing that to everybody. And I remember a distinction too of when things go into core is if Elixir itself is needed, it needs these tools, you know, for for you know working on its own things, like for mix or for X unit, for example. And so it sounds like Gen Stage and Flow weren't really needed for developing and and working, you know, the language itself. Opposed to this other module that did make it into Elixir. Since 1.0, you could name processes, but the only name you could give to those processes is an atom. And atoms, they are like, you can create them dynamically, but it's a really bad idea to create them dynamically because they're not garbage collected. So if you are creating processes based on a user, for example, because you want to track a user or something that is happening in the system dynamically, atoms are not good. And we didn't have solutions to solve this problem before. I mean, there were solutions, but they were usually solving it from the perspective of a cluster. Like I can name a process anywhere in a cluster, which again, it's great, but sometimes you really only want the local thing. So I don't remember exactly what was the discussion that led us to Redstream. I probably got tired of seeing people like defining atoms dynamically for this. And I was like, we need to have an answer. But it was really interesting because I think this is exactly like this kind of nuance because like I think today maybe today we use the red string elixir but we didn't at the time but like naming processes feels such a big part of the abstraction and of the model and not being able to do it uh, dynamically felt just like a big shotgun for you to shoot at your foot that we felt like well this should be part of the language and also because the red string is much smaller than gen stage and flow even for GenStation Flow, they're not super big. The registry is considerably smaller. You know, it was on the example where we're like, yeah, you know, we decided to add it even because we felt exactly the points that you brought up, right? About, hey, is it really part of the language? But for this one, we felt like, yeah, this is really part of the language because we felt like this tool should really be accessible to people and it should be easy to, to use. I think registry is one of those things where you think, okay, well, what's the alternative, Right. Before we had registry, what were we doing? And so whenever you create a process, you're getting a PID, which is its process ID. And when you look at that, it gets printed out. It's pretty meaningless. They're going to change if they get respawned. And you can kind of think of it as a uniquely generated ID for this instance of the running runtime. But then say, okay, well, I could create something and I just have to hold on to that PID. And then that's my, I have to create my own association. And well, maybe, maybe I do want people to be able to find it. So what if I wrote it to an ETS table and well, I, I could index it by something. So I could index it by maybe a string or something else. And that's kind of what you're doing is you end up naming it. Isn't that how registry works on the inside? It's using an ETS table to kind of create that key value bridge to the PID. Yes. And one of the things that was very important for us 
was to make sure that the register was scalable. And when we had the proof of concept of the register ready, I prepared some benchmarks. So people, I think if you go to the announcement blog post, there's still a link to those benchmarks and those numbers to make sure that it's going to scale linearly or as close as linearly to possible. And one of the things that's also worth talking about in the in the context of the registry is that half of the registry, because the registry allow like unique and duplicated terms, but and half of the registry was actually born in Phoenix PubSub because Phoenix PubSub needs to do exactly that. You need to say, hey, I am a process and I'm interested in this particular topic. So when you're going to send a message, you need to find everybody who is interested in that topic. So the act of making the registry scalable was actually a lesson learned from Phoenix PubSub. So it actually started in Phoenix PubSub and we got the lessons there. We got the needs that we were seeing and we're like, okay, we are going, we are baking that into the language. To the point, I think later I went to refactor Phoenix PubSub and I think like the implementation of Phoenix PubSub is like 250 lines of code or something ridiculous like that. It's super small. We talked about task.asyncstream and registry and how those were big, big impacts on Elixir itself. There were a couple of other quality of life improvements that we should bring up, you know, things that we might take for granted today. As for example, syntax coloring on inspect, that was introduced in 1.4. I love that, right? Just having all of those little developer experience things in there. Another one was the Myers difference, you know, being taken out of uh, X unit and put into Elixir proper because that was that was a really easy way to find like, did you mean this kind of error messages? So I think last episode we talked about X unit diff being introduced so we can show the diffs in, in the error messages. And this is also a very common pattern in that we introduce like new features and inside of them we use like some algorithms. And then in later releases, we extract some of those algorithms out. And I think in this case, someone actually wanted to customize the diff. And then they were like, oh, but I have to copy and paste all this code. So we went and refactored the code. So it uses a bunch of more like building blocks. And one of the building blocks that came out of it is the Myers difference. And what the Myers difference does, it's not the digital mean. That's the Gerald Winkler. There are a bunch of those things. There, we also have something called like, back distance because sometimes you, you want to figure out if you want to show the diff between two things, but computing the diff, it's actually a very expensive operation because something, what Myers difference does is that it needs to traverse both things. I don't remember the complexity of the algorithm, right? But it needs to find like the shortest path of modifications, like what are the insertions or what are the deletions? And sometimes computing this thing can be very expensive. So we have something called bag distance that tells you how close two strings are. Because if these strings, they're not close together, you should just say, hey, it's all different, right? Like, I don't care. I'm not, I'm not going to show you something that is like, you know, 80% red and 80% green. It might as well say everything is red and everything is green. So you get like a pre-flight of bet with bag distance. Yeah. So you're kind of like, you know, how close they are. And I think bag distance is just like, it's a very simple algorithm. It's like, you count the letters and then you see what is the percentage of the letters or the, the code points. But it's all those things, like the Myers difference, it all came from the X unit diff. And we were slowly like bringing those things up to actual part of the standard library. They were all like previously just buried in the X unit diff code. I think there's a little truth there that we've touched on, which is I've seen this in my own projects, that when you're wanting to make something just that much nicer, just adding that little extra something that, that makes it a better experience, you end up getting a whole lot more complex. Like getting into, you're probably like reading white papers and how these algorithms work. And it's like, but it adds a lot of value collectively to all these people. So maybe it's worth it. I find it interesting and, and kind of fun. No, it, it's it's crazy. I, we didn't talk about it because when, when we, we started 1.0, we already had inspect, right? We were saying, hey, I want to implement inspect into the language. Like, congratulations, go read three papers, right? <laughs> hey, I want to implement, I want to implement different. It's like the same thing. Hey, go read about Myers difference. Go read, go read about like generic or go read about a back distance. So, you know, it's great that there's all this prior art, but there is a, a good amount of like, hey, you have a bunch to catch up with. And some other quality of life improvements was like one of them in particular is like warning on unused module attributes. So if you just have some some dead code there, you know, recognizing that kind of stuff. So that, that's the beginning of like 
maybe tracing a little bit. I'm stretching here, but like we're not we're not to tracing not near it yet, but it's starting to lean in that direction. And that's just inside of Elixir, you know, and then then inside of Mix, there's a couple of other things that we can talk about. Maybe the the first quick one could be that Mix eScript.install or archive.install from Hex was introduced in 1.4, which made it a lot easier. I I remember trying to install Phoenix and always getting this like this huge you know, the, the, the direct URL. And I was like, what? You know, we're not using hex for this. Like this, this feels, this feels a little strange. Yeah. You, you had to not only, so you need to do like mix. I think at the time it's still an archive. So mix archive install. And then it was the path to like a GitHub URL, which meant that on every new release, somebody had to upload the package to a Git repository as well, right? So so the idea was what we were doing before is that somebody always had to pre-compile the package. That's what we were doing before. Somebody pre-compiled the package, they would upload, the, not the package, the archive to be more precise, okay? It's a zip file, basically. Somebody would generate the zip file and they would send it somewhere. And in this version, you can give a hacks repository or you can even give a GitHub URL. But what it does is that it clones the repository locally and then it builds the script on the fly or the archive on the fly for you and install on your machine. So you do the build on your machine, but it's usually fast. And, and that's why today you could say, hey, uh, mix archive install hex PHX new. And it, it just brings, it's a very small package. I don't think, I don't even think it has dependency. So it's super fast. It just gets the package, uh, runs mix compile on it, builds the, the archive and copies it to the proper place and, and done. And, and it's great because, like, I think before maybe the the archives there were version, and they were like, "Well, what if I want to have the old archive? Did you find the old URL?" Or every time, as I said, I want to update Phoenix. You had to go to the website and find what was the URL that you're using. And now it's like, no, it's hacks paychex new. I, I have a whole condition in my runner, my diff generator for old versions of Phoenix to go to go grab it in this this wholly different way. It's actually cached in my Docker images, but yeah, it was it was interesting coming across that little bit of history that you know that we've long since forgotten. <laughs> Maybe the last part on 1.4 that we can touch on is like the application inference via extra applications. So I remember. You know, if you wanted to start an Elixir application, and in my case, it was always a Phoenix application, you're probably going to add a bunch of mix libraries to it. And the typical, and some of them probably even still say this, in their readmes, they would always say, put it in your, you know, your depths list, and then also add it to your applications list, you know, if, if it were that kind of library where you're at, it has to start and it has its own supervision tree. Which are 99% of the libraries. yeah. And so now in 1.4, I don't have to do it, but like all these libraries are still telling me to do it. Now I'm a little bit confused on like, when, when is it applicable? When is it not? Can I ignore this instruction now? So, so tell me about this new mix feature, extra applications and the inference of it. Yeah, exactly that. So you had to add something to the depths and to the list of dependencies, which is the same as you do today, but you also had to list the application explicitly. If you didn't do that, Nothing broke, so why I'm going to do it, right? Or most things did not break. But the issue is that if you were to assemble release, which was not part of core, so this is probably when distillery started gaining traction. So if you were to build a release, the release would be missing that application that you forgot to list, and then it wouldn't work in production, and you would find that out only in production. So we're like, well, it's kind of silly to ask people to add to both places. And most dependencies, most applications, you actually want to add to both places. So let's stop asking people to do that and automatically infer. But there was a period of migration there that it definitely caused confusion. And I remember sending many pull requests to many projects, just removing that part saying, hey, add it to our application list. And if you see that today, like just send a pull request. You don't need to add to the applications list. Uh, some old projects may still have it. And it's funny because later on, I don't remember, but more recently, maybe within the last two years, if you call an application, if you call the code a module from an application in your code, and that's not in the application list, we actually warn you. So we went like the whole way of making sure that you're not shipping flawed releases that are missing modules. 
So just to remind like the time frame that we're talking about, this is early 2017. Yeah, this is five years ago at this point, right? So quite a while ago, yeah, way before releases. And yeah, yeah, Distillery was the releaser module at the time, the releaser library. So yeah, these new problems that were coming up and Elixir was starting to solve these. And this is this is decidedly like developer experience here, I think. This this whole release is colors it developer experience to me. We got two big features, async stream, you know, with tasks, registry, lots of quality of life improvements. We got easier and less foot guns with with the application inference via you know, uh, extra applications. You just just put it in your depths list, and then uh, and it should self report on itself. Use your installation of Phoenix. Hopefully, you know at least at least starting there and going forward. That whole release developer experience to me that was a landmark release. I think, and maybe that's just a landmark for me because that's more of what I can remember developing in. That describes 1.4 pretty well. Five years ago, at this point, at the time of this recording, 1.5 you know, is, is the next release out of that. Taking it out of Elixir for a second, I know that there's a, a lot of other release schedules out in the world, you know, and Intel Intel has a pretty popular release schedule where every other release, or maybe Apple has every other release is a big release. And then the, you know, the one in between is that smaller refinement, that smaller polish, you know? So like, they're just they, they're learning lessons from their last release, but not a huge, huge innovation. Would you consider 1.5 to be that? Yeah, looking back at the notes, it definitely feels on the smaller side. Not intentional. I think we sometimes we do have some releases that are you're like, yeah, it's a bunch of small goodies, you know? I'm looking at the list. So there is this one that I love. I gave a talk that I really like, which I think was mostly live coding. I don't remember. It was on Elixir London. I think it was like the little feature that no one knew. We will find it and have it in the notes. But we introduced exception blame. And what exception blame does is that when you have an exception, it's a, an exception callback that allows you to attach additional information to the exception. So today, if we get a function clause error, and then it lists all the clauses for you with the diff where which parameter matched and which guard matched and which ones didn't, this is exception blame. And this came in this release, 1.5. So it kind of introduced this opportunity for us to augment exceptions. And we started using in a bunch of different places to make sure that the error experience is nicer. We also got UTF-8 add-ons, function names and variables. So this has always been a strong point for me, like a person with, uh, uh, you know, speak native language Portuguese, there is an accent in my name. Uh, <laughs> so for, that's why from the beginning, Elixir has always focused on Unicode. And the thing here is that at the beginning, a lot of people, they're like, you know, oh, now we're going to start seeing crazy code. Like, and this sometimes is one of the objections for it. Like some people would say, well, I don't want to have Unicode in my variable names in my code because now somebody can write some code that is not in English and I cannot understand it, right? And then like flashy news for you, like I can write it in Portuguese today and you're not going to understand it either, right? <laughs> and a lot of people thought like it's going to allow you to have like all this kind of stuff, like, you know, emoji as variable names, which <laughs> some languages do allow, or like some mathematical symbols. But there is actually the, the Unicode, like the consortium, they actually specify how language should behave in this stuff. And there is a specification, you know, if you want to have like language, right? Not symbols, not, you know, not mathematical symbols, not emoji, not counter flags as part of the code. And that's what we implemented. And it's actually curious because we are improving this in the next, in the upcoming Elixir 1.14 to restrict it a little bit more because people found out some attack vectors like, hey, I can define a variable where the letter A looks like the ask letter A, but it's like the A in Cyrillian, for example. And that's coming the next release, uh, protections against that. But that's when we started like supporting some, some basic support for the code in the variable names according to the Unicode specification. And we have a page in Elixir Docs that explicitly declares what we implement from the specification, what we don't. So what you were just mentioning there is called Trojan Source. I have a link to this in the show notes in case you want to follow up with that. And it is using Unicode because you have this whole idea of most Western languages are left to right, and the, but then you do have some languages that are right to left. And so that what you can do is you can have these invisible 
Unicode characters that change the direction that the code will be interpreted as, which causes it to say, you can read the code as like, oh, it takes this and adds it to that. And this is the answer. And maybe it does some other operations. And then what you're able to do invisibly is change the direction around. So it says, oh, do this other thing first and then do this. And so you can cause behavior that is malicious that you cannot read by even visually inspecting the code. It's good to hear that, that you're having some additional things and benefits to, to come at that. I know I use Visual Studio Code and one of their recent releases was to highlight those in the editor, just saying, hey, here's some Unicode stuff, some invisible characters and kind of highlight that so you can easily spot them. Yeah, GitHub is also emitting warnings if they see that. And this particular issue, so the paper that you shared, it's two issues. So one is the bidirectional stuff and that is fixed in Elixir 1.13. But then there is also what they call confusables, which is, well, I can write admin in ASCII or Latin, and I can write admin using another alphabet that is very similar, and you may not know the difference. So somebody, for example, somebody would be able to say, hey, I want to check if the user is equal to the Atom admin. But the Atom admin is like, it's something that will never match. Or I can say the opposite. The user is not an admin, but the admin is the Russian atom that's like is not, not going to match what you have in your database. And so it's like everybody becomes an admin, for example, right? So there is this thing with like confusables and how you should allow different characters to, to mix. And that's basically having a more explicit approach and say, hey, I'm allowing those vocabularies or something like that. Back on 1.5, we're just going for it like very fast. But the other one, this is, <laughs> is streamlined child specs. So this is actually a big one, not in terms of features, but in terms of talking about. I think this requires some context. But today, when you say, hey, I want to use a process, right? Like you want to use act or repo. You have a list of children in your, in your application supervision tree, and you list the name act or repo there. Or you give a tuple with two elements where the first one is the actor repo and then some option to that, right? So that's the API that we mostly interface with today. But in previous Elixir versions, you would actually say, hey, I want to put the actor repo in my supervision tree and it's going to be a supervisor or a worker. And here are the rare start parameters. You would pass all the configuration but that felt very backwards because it's like, you know, what the repository actually is or, or a process or a module, what that actually is, what is the restart strategies? It's like responsibility of that module to define it. And now you have this thing spread out in two places and that could lead to subtle bugs, right? So for example, a early Phoenix application could generate something that was a worker and then Phoenix changed that later to be a supervisor but your generated code was saying that it was a worker. So this was all about encapsulating what means to start something under a supervision tree and encapsulating that in a single place. It's small when you look at it. It's a small change. It's like a small addition to how you start supervisors, but I think it's a very important conceptual change. I'd agree with that. And, and since you mentioned Phoenix, uh, we don't have to go into it, but just to mark the time frame here, you know, we're talking about 1.5, that's late 2017 at this point. This is when Phoenix 1.3 comes out. And if folks remember the history of Phoenix, 1.2 didn't look the way that 1.3 and even today looks like. 1.3 was the time where that whole concept of context modules was, was introduced. That's you know not related to Elixir so much, but you know Phoenix has an, a, a big impact on Elixir. If you had a Phoenix 1.2 application, you probably remember upgrading it to 1.3. <laughs> because of uh, of how how much it changed, mostly in the generators, but that was an impactful change for software design too, I think, especially for new folks coming into Elixir and Phoenix at that point. Yeah, and the last thing here we have for 1.5, the last major one, and I wonder how many people use this, is that we have something called IEXPRI and the ability of setting up breakpoints from IEX. So IEXPRI allows you to drop into a place and access... It's not really a debugger because you can't like, it's, well, it's a debugger, but it's not a step for debugger. You can't step through things. 
and it allows you to set up some breakpoints and go to certain places in the code. And this was part of 1.5 as well. It's building on the same foundation as Exception Blame. And for more details, there's the link to the talk, like the feature that no one knew or something like that, where I explain how this stuff works internally and the interesting things that we can do with it. I don't want to forget about this too. We skipped over it, but back in the previous episode in 1.3, the big change there, I think, was like naive date times and, and the calendar system. And so we, we didn't talk about it at 1.4, but there were some calendar improvements there, some some quality of life improvements, some extra functions. And in 1.5, there's more calendar work that's happening. And so in this in this case, the ability to, to convert between calendars is another step to having a, an easier time you know, with, with dates and times and time zones, probably. <laughs> After 1.3, pretty much all releases, they had additions to the calendar module. And I'm not sure if we talk about this. I actually think we, we didn't talk about this. So when we introduced the calendar types, date, time, date, time, and naive date, time, we had the concerns about introducing the types. But one of the things that we did since the beginning is that we wanted to support multiple calendars as well, not only the... Is it the Gregorian one that we use today? I think so, yeah. We wanted to support different types of calendars. And we, we were slowly, with time, we we're adding like convenience functions, query functions, functions for converting between calendars, functions for working with time zones. They're all coming. So in all those, we are not covering everything, right? But all those releases, they definitely have calendar features in them. We've got to move on to the change log for a release 1.6. As far as I can tell from looking at the changelog, it's 2018, and there was a really big feature that got a lot of discussion, both good and bad, which was the code formatter becoming official and part of the language. I know from my own personal experience, like when it came out, I was like, yes, we have a code formatter. I don't like the decision it just made. (laughs) And then, you know, having to take some time and kind of adjust my thinking to say, well... If it's really formatting it ugly, maybe I should just change the way my code is structured (laughs) because it's coming out really goofy. It's like, okay, yeah, maybe it's overly complex on one line. So I can break this out. Maybe you can talk about your perspective on the code formatter. How was it received? Did you get a lot of hate or love or what happened? Oh, you know, there are so so many great stories about the formatter. I have to say, like, if when we were designing the formatter and making the decisions... If there was a reality TV show around the Elixir crew, it would have been like a a hot TV show, right? It's like, <laughs> you know, the discussions, people are trying to figure out, no, this is better. No, I prefer this. Like, come on. We already did that. You know, it's not going to work with this. It was... Uh, Can I configure it? Can I configure it? Please <laughs> let me configure it. <laughs> At least that part, we're all in agreement, right? Which I think it was why it was even more important why some of us really wanted some things to work in certain ways because we, we know like configuration was out of the table. And, and there's a saying like, you know, the goal for matter is every, it's the most hated for matter and the most loved for matter. <laughs> I think that's kind of summarized it well. One of the things that we were talking, we talked about in the previous episode was exactly that some of the features that we're adding, they started to come up because more companies and larger teams they were starting to use Elixir. So we had to make the compiler faster. We had to emit more warnings. We had to find things sooner. A lot of the improvements come from that. And with the Elixir formatter, I think it was kind of the same thing. The pressure for the formatter was like, hey, you know, we have more team and I'm spending like 50% of my pull requests talking about, you know, somebody's trying to enforce some sort of consistent style and we are wasting time to this. And then Credo was already, I think, popular or getting a lot of traction. So people were like, well, is Credo not going to exist after we have the format? It's like, no, it's the opposite, right? Like Credo no longer needs to worry about style. We can actually fix those for you and it can focus on more important and more actionable feedback. I haven't used a formatter before, I think, before the Elixir one. And I was not really convinced, like, you know, I, I, I was really coming from the perspective I think a lot of people had, which is like, well, you know, the best way to format things is the way I write it, right? Really not wanting to concede that, you know, like it needs to be. And a lot of the things that I form, the way I formatted code before, it actually did not, it's not how the, the formatter does it. So it's not like, hey, this is like, you should personal preferences, right? Because if you have to think about the formatter, 
you need to have like rules, right? You need to say, look, you need to define, it needs to be a well-defined process, right? A repeatable, well-defined process. So you actually, you have to go with something clear and logical rather than gut feelings. This was a lot of the process that we went through at the time and, and the discussions that we have. And today I can't work without the code formatter. I can't work. Because once you get used with the formatter, there is one feature that is invaluable for the formatter. Even if the project, if I'm the only person writing that code, nobody's ever going to read it. I'm still going to use the formatter because the formatter allows me to just write code and not think about writing code and formatting at the same time. I just write code. I enter new lines. If I want to enter three new lines for some reason, I can enter them. If I don't want to indent that piece of code, I don't need to go back and indent it. I only need to put the code down. And then I say, hey, make it pretty. And once you get used to that, like, hey, I don't have to be writing and formatting things. You just, I just write it. And then later something, once you don't have to do that anymore, it's a really game changer. And that was what I learned with the formatter. A lot of the experiences that I also learned, right? So before you would write like really nested code, or I would write a function like with nine arguments, right? People would say, well, when I format it now, it's ugly. It's taking like nine lines, one for each argument. It's like, why you have nine arguments in your function, right? Like use a map, use a struct. Like the formatter is basically telling you like this code, like there is nothing I can do to make this code pretty, <laughs> right? I have a bunch of rules to try to make a code as pretty as as I can, and I cannot make this work, right? So it's a really big flag. I was like, you know, like these can be restructured. So people would have like nested code, then that becomes like very indented. It's like, you know, like refactor it. And based on this feedback, we improve the doc. So now that they are hearing us saying those things, they're like, well, maybe I heard this story before. It's because like those things are actually in the docs. They are saying, you know, like consider those things, like how you should live with the formatter and how you should incorporate the formatter in your workflow. Yeah, I think one of the big benefits that you'd already mentioned, and I just want to hit on again, is this idea that the value that the code formatter brings to the team is it takes away the whole argument of pull request nitpicks about how something is formatted. It just removes that, which actually, you know, creates interpersonal strife and kind of conflict because like, oh, I don't want him to review my code because... He has these stupid opinions I don't like. He pipes wrong. <laughs> yes, exactly. So it just removes a lot of that. And I think there's a lot of value, like you said, of just being able to throw down the code so I can focus on what I'm wanting to happen as I'm expressing it in a language. And then it becomes visually structured as a separate step. I went through that whole process of how do I feel about it? And then it was really you talking about the value of not being a point of discussion anymore. That's like, I get it. Okay. We don't all have to love it, but we we might dislike different things about it. And it just removes that whole conflict and discussion from the teams. So I think I, I totally love it. Yes. And I, I just totally adopt it now. It rubs off on you though, right? Like when I first started, there were things that I was like, I don't really like this. And then after you use it for a year, like I can't, believe I did it this other way. <laughs> right, which I think I think it's one of the points is just like how we just get used to something, right? And we were just used to it. And, you know, it's easy to kind of rewire our brain. A lot of the discussions, they would be like, well, I prefer this way, right? And it's basically preference. I was like, oh, my opinion that something, somebody say, well, my opinion is that this approach is better. And that's when I come up with the saying, like, you know, if all we have is opinions, I prefer mine <laughs> because, you know, if we have to choose, I'll, I'll just pick mine, right? Because that's all we have. There is actually one thing, which is like the training comma that the formatter removes that some people will argue and they are good arguments for having training commas. And Elixir supports them, but the formatter removes it. But we also have arguments why we don't want to encourage that particular kind of behavior there are a bunch of discussions. People can find that online if you search in the issues tracker. Like a lot of the time, it's just like, you know, it, it's it's a preference that you kind of rewire it. And then when you go back, it's just like, well, I can't, I can't believe I did this, right? It was just much noisier. I love how there's not very many configuration options, though, because I remember in the days of JavaScript, the team coming together and like configuring ESLint in 57 different ways. 
And then we had to all go through the dance of, well, I prefer this and my opinion is that, and we should add trailing commas here and not there. And, and Elixir is just like, we don't even configure anything. It's just run it. The defaults are great. Make sure that it handles migrations and ecto schema, no parens, whatever. You're good to go. Done. One of the things that all the, conf- I'm not sure if it's all, uh, except for the line link, there, there's the discussion, should be 80 characters, should be 100 and I was like, let's make it 98. <laughs> there is a reason, like there's a technical reason, but part of the reason is that if it's 80, some people is going to say it should be 100. If it's 100, people are going to say it should be 80. But if it's 98, everybody's going to say, why is it 98? <laughs> you know, it's, it's just it's just like completely reframes the discussion because otherwise if you see eight, like a lot of people, they would like, inst- like I, for example, like 80 for me is too short, right? We might as well could have made like 82, but I would instantly, like, if I saw 80, I would instantly say, I want 100, right? Like, you, your brain is wired to do this stuff. They're like, just make it none of those. And then it's going to reframe the discussion. Uh, but besides the line length, most of our configurations, they converge. If you have a Boolean flag and you turn it on, then when you turn it off, it is not going to go and rewire we write the whole code base. So for example, we have the thing like functions without parentheses, where locals without parentheses. So our local function calls where the parentheses are not required. But if you add the parentheses explicitly, we are going to keep it, right? Which means that if you remove something from local without parentheses, and then you add it back, we are going to add the parentheses, then we're not going to remove it. And this is both to preserve the user choice, but also to remove the things where people are changing the configuration and it has such a large impact on the system where it rewrites a bunch of the things. So except for line length, all of our configurations, they converge. When you opt in, for example, to something, then it's going to apply an optional style, but after that is applied, it's going to stick. And that makes sense just because you would create so much Git noise of just tweaking something and rerunning the whole format on the whole project and every file changes and it was no substantial change at all, no meaningful change. Just creates a lot of noise. That makes a lot of sense. And it's a subtlety and attention to what is the impact of this that I really appreciate. So one of the other things I think we need to talk about is this change to dynamic supervisor. In the Erlang beam, the OTP supervisor strategy, what was it named before this? We had a single supervisor module and the dynamic one was called, it's still in Erlang OTP, it's a special strategy called simple one for one. You can explain what it does. But for me, the biggest issue with the simple one for one, I'm not sure if we change the return types, but it definitely changes like the arguments that you would expect for some of the functions. So some of the functions behave differently. And I think that can be very confusing. It's true. Like, because I remember when this first happened, I presented at a meetup just to talk about the strategies and how this one recently changed. You're totally right, though, just that the idea with the dynamic supervisor or the simple one-for-one, as it was called before, is you are defining the arguments you're passing in were the template for how to create children that all looked exactly the same. They had the same structure, the same type, where a normal supervisor, like a one-for-one, could have children of completely different types. You could have an ecto repo, and then you could have another supervisor for the nested tree, and then you could have a registry, so completely different types. So this dynamic one, the name change. So that was one of my questions. Like, where did it come from? Because it didn't change the way OTP works. It sounds like it was just to communicate better what its intention is. So one of the things that I do a lot when naming modules, when naming functions, is that I write the documentation first, and then I try to get the keywords from the documentation. Like most supervisors, you define the tree up front. This is one where you want to start the children dynamically. You don't know what are the children. So that's where the dynamic word or on demand, right? I could have called it on demand supervisor, but that's the idea. Like it's dynamic. It's not a static there in the code. So the next you had like these module attributes, which you'd use to annotate functions. And that was where you added this idea of deprecated where I could flag a function as deprecated being a nice thing because it's, I have a large code base. We want to discourage people from using this one function going forward, but we don't want to break everything for all the different branches that everybody's on in the team or, or if it's a library. 
we added two main attributes, and I think this is very in line with the theme of like what are the pains that we are feeling right now, right? So one is probably maybe we started deprecating some stuff. So like we talked about like the new supervisor child specs, and eventually we want to deprecate the old ways of doing things. So we want to deprecate things, but also what started happening is that we are adding new features to Elixir, as we can see throughout the show. And then I would go to the docs and I would say, oh, there's this feature in the Elixir module, right? Like, for example, if I'm maintaining a library, like Phoenix supports like four or five different versions of Elixir 6, right? And then you are playing with the code and you're like, oh, there's this function in this module. But that function was added in a recent version, but the documentation was not telling you so. So you also added the sync attribute, which you started using in Elixir. And I think we went back even to add annotations to what was added in Elixir 1.4 to say, hey, this is the version where this thing was added. Today there, if you go to the documentation, it's part of the metadata. It appears there in the corner. And it's very good for you to know like, hey, can I use this? Or I cannot use this yet. Right, because a lot of times you might be pulling up the X docs and your project might not be on that version yet. Yeah, especially because if you go to the documentation, it's always the latest, right? And I think this is a great compromise of like telling people to always go to the latest documentation, but still letting them know if they can use something or not. In 1.6, there are two last things that we can talk about and we are going to finish for today. But we also have a lot of great improvements in both Mix, especially the compiler and in XUnit. We talked in the previous show how at the very first Elixir versions after 1.0, if we change one file in the code, it would recompile everything. And then we improved it to start tracking what is a compile time dependency and what is a runtime dependency. But what would happen in that is that the structs, they are runtime, they are their compile time dependencies because you need to expand the struct field at compilation time. You had no macros, right? You, you're not using any macros in your code. You're not doing anything dynamically, but the simple fact of adding a struct field that would add a compile time dependency, and that would cause a lot of things to recompile. So in Elixir 1.6, we started tracking structs dependencies separately. And in later releases, I think two or two releases ago, we, we, we kind of generalized it, but we now track structs separately. So before, simply changing the struct would consider that module change at compilation time. And with this change, if you add a new feature to the struct, we are only going to recompile if we would track like which fields of the struct you are using at compilation time. And we would see if you're using a struct and that would reduce considerably the amount of compilations under certain scenarios and improve the workflow. And I think in the next episodes, we are going to come back to talk about the compile time improvements and how we track recompilations for sure. But this was like the second big one, right? So last week we talked about tracking compile time dependencies. And now we are talking about tracking struct dependencies, and we are going to build and build on top of this for sure. We also added things like we had this task, right? Like mix xref for seeing how your files are organized and depend on each other. So we added the ability of showing like general statistics. Before we had the version to generate like a dot file with the dependencies. But if we have 200 files, like you can't, you can't do anything with that, right? They have like 200 dots with a bunch of arrows coming and going. Like it's not useful. So we added this stats thing, which is about showing like what are the files with most incoming dependencies, most outgoing dependencies. We also got contributions from Jake Becker. And I want to explicitly mention this because that's when he started working on the Alexander language server. And not only he bootstrapped all that. He also sent improvements to Elixir to expose more information. So these, he added what we call the compiler diagnostics. So now the compilers uh, return data saying, hey, this failed at this line and this column. This is the severity of the error. So he can get that information and show it in Visual Studio or in the language server. So this was a very nice contribution for him that set up something important that we are all using and leveraging today. And I think the last big thing that we want to talk about in Elixir 1.6 was the improvements to XUnit. And I think this comes back to this whole continual story that there's thread that's kind of coming through these series of releases where it's developer experience improvements as well. And XUnit is one of those things where it helps the developer a lot. So maybe you can walk us through some of these headline features that hit at this time. 
Yeah, I think the biggest one, and actually I'm curious to see how many people know it, but there is a slowest flag that you can give to mix test. So you can say like mix test dash dash slowest 10, and it's going to show you what are your 10 slowest tests. And that's great because it can help you find like, you know, which part of the suit is slow and this kind of stuff. I actually just used that feature this last week. I had a test you know, multiple processes and it was doing waiting for something. This one particular test actually wasn't waiting for the result of this other function of this other process, but it would just hang and, you know, until it timed out and then it would still pass. So I was like, oh crap, how am I going to find this? Oh yeah, I'll use dash dash slowest. And I do the slowest three and it immediately flags it. Okay. That's the one. And then I was able to, oh, okay. Something had changed, it's waiting on the wrong thing. So it's just always hitting a timeout. So if you are in that situation today, there's something else you can do. It came in later, a later version, maybe 1.12 or 1.13, which is you can also hit comment and backslash when you're waiting on a test. Control and backslash on Windows and, and Linux machines. And if you're on a Mac, it's the comment and the backslash. And that's going to tell which test it, you're waiting on. It prints the test name. I think it sends a sig int or sync quit or something like that. And you can actually use this to shut down the VM anytime as well. You know, if if you don't like like that the that you need to press like if you are on IX and like to have to press like control C twice, you can just hit a uh, common backslash and it's going to shut it down immediately. That's a cool trick. Don't want to hit that accidentally, I guess. Yeah, it's it's a unique signal. I just don't remember which one is it. So you can probably use it in a bunch of other situations. So um, yeah, be careful for not hitting it. Don't, don't create a habit, right? So in Elixir, we always, as far as I can remember, you can call mix test and then you can pass the a file name. It's going to run all the tests of that file. Or you can pass mix, ta- mix test file name, column, and the line. And it's going to run the test in that line. But in this release, you can give the line of a describe where the describe block starts. And it's going to run all the tests in that describe. I actually, I did not remember this was a feature. There were some times that I wanted to run all the tests in the describe. And I would use like the other notation, which is like only describe and then the contents of the describe. So it's actually good to remember that I can actually just give the the line of where the, the describe call is at it needs to be that exact line. And the, the last one I have here is that it's a very small change, but for some reason I really like it, is that we started reporting doc tests separately. So when you if you have any doc tests in your project and then you run the suite, it says, hey, I have 100 doc tests. I have uh, 300 tests. It was from this release that we started reporting those as different things. And I just want to add to that uh, with a, the describe block with the line number. I use that all the time. I love that. And just in case you, dear listener, are hearing this and you're like, oh, I, I didn't know I could use my line numbers. Or one of the things I think is just fun is that let's say you have a test block of code and it's like 10 lines of code is happening in that. If your line number is anywhere inside that block of code, it just uses that to identify which test should I run. And I love picking something around the middle because if I start making changes to my setup or something like that and it moves around, I can still focus on just that one test and it doesn't move off of, from where my cursor is for that line number. That's a big game changer when you're working in tests and debugging. For the describe, it needs to be the exact line of the describe. But yeah, for the tests, when you say a line, we are going to find what is the first test before the line that you gave. So for example, if you go and say, mix test, file, and then you give line 10,000 because I'm hoping you don't have a test file with 10,000 things, right? Let's imagine it's just 1,000 lines. It's going to pick the last test in that file because we're just we're just looking like, hey, what is the, the test that comes before? That's how the, the logic works. And because of that, the describe needs to be exact because we don't know if we want to run the test immediately before or if we want to run the, the road, the the, the the whole describe, but I'm I'm super glad to hear that you're using the feature because I really, literally, I was like typing the describe by hand that I wanted to run, and yeah, <laughs> and it's good to know that you know it was good to remember I kept as a line, right? Which is funny because I was thinking like you know it would be nice if when we have these episodes, right, at the very beginning before I started, like 
maybe people are going to learn like new tricks and then like, hey, I am learning new tricks because I forgot about them. I think you just maybe unintentionally gave us a really neat trick. So I always like to run the last test because I'm usually working from top to bottom. So now I can just put line number 10,000 and just keep rerunning. And when I add a new test, the last test will just be the one to be run. Yep. <laughs> totally doing that. Well, Jose, this has been awesome and it has gone way long, but I didn't want to cut it off because it was really going well. And I really appreciated the detail and the backstory that we were getting. If people want to follow you online or just see what else is going on, where should they go to do that? Twitter, I believe. And then Dashbit blog, Elixir Link blog. Those are the the main places. And also follow the Alink Ecosystem Foundation because sometimes we are publishing some of the work that we do through the like the Alink Ecosystem Foundation blog. If I'm doing something, it's going to appear in one of those. Well, I'm looking forward to our next episode with you, which will be next month as we take on part three of this fun journey, which has been a blast because I've I've picked up new things and just remembered things. And it's like, I oh yeah, IEX Pry. Yeah, that's right. I never really use that. I don't think about that. Little things like that, like give us an opportunity to revisit and say, look at some things that have been there for a long time. And we may just kind of pass by it, or we came to the language after this point, and we just didn't know about some of these things. So I really appreciate that. And there's the big question. Will it be shorter episode? Will it be longer? (laughs) We'll be taking bets. But unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir. (laughs) 